What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, we're in episode 100 and something of the podcast, so not a very new podcast anymore. But for those of you tuning in for the first time, uh, basically what we do here on the podcast is I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published on uh, something we think you guys would like to hear a discussion about. And then hopefully at the end of the podcast or, you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Stephen F. Knott, and <clears throat> excuse me, Dr. Knott is a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, and prior to that, he co-chaired the Presidential Oral History Program at the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. Uh, you may have seen his writings in Time Magazine or the Wall Street Journal or National Review, the Claremont Review of Books, the Washington Post, the Washington Times, the National Interest, Foreign Policy, Law and Liberty, and uh, the Review of Politics, among many others. And his books include Secret and Sanction, Covert Operations in the American Presidency, Washington and Hamilton, The Alliance That Forged America, uh, Rush to Judgment, George W. Bush, The War on Terror, and His Critics, and The Lost Soul of the American Presidency, The Decline into Demagoguery, and the Prospects for Renewal. And lastly, he is the author of Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy, uh, which was published back in October by University Press of Kansas, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Knott, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me, Tim. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, me too. Uh, I guess starting off, why don't you tell us about your uh, your personal <laughs> personal history, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, with the Kennedys and with John F. Kennedy and the Kennedy Library yeah. itself, and and you know, and what made you want to write this book? What was the what was the genesis of it? I wanted to write this book, Tim, because, as your question suggests, I've sort of been living with John F. Kennedy, in a sense, all my life. Uh, my first memory as a child is of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, my parents watching this grainy black-and-white television. I'm not sure I even knew who this man was on the TV, but I could tell by the look on my parents' faces that they were deeply concerned about what he was saying. And they were trying to quiet my brother and I down who were wrestling on the floor in front of the TV, which we did quiet down quickly again because we could see the fear. And then my older brother came home from school the next day and said all the kids were talking about the country going to war. That's my first memory as a human being. My second earliest memory is coming home from school from the first grade and seeing my mother crying in front of that same grainy black and white television as she watched the news from Dallas, Texas about the assassination of President Kennedy. So those are my two earliest memories and they both deal with John F. Kennedy. And I should add to that that I grew up in a Kennedy worshiping family. 
Uh, I grew up in Massachusetts. My mother is of Irish Catholic descent. And John F. Kennedy, of course, broke that religious barrier that it kept uh, a Catholic or any non-Protestant out of the White House for a considerable time. So in the view of my mother and many of her fellow co-religionists and fellow Irish Americans, John F. Kennedy could do no wrong. And I absorbed all of that as a young man. And my first job out of college was at the John F. Kennedy Library of Boston, where Kennedy's papers and personal items are kept, uh, which, by the way, my mother was thrilled about that that was my <laughs> first job. Um, so I was very much part of that sort of worshipful scene, I guess I would call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, over time, my political views moved to the right, and I very much drifted away from this Kennedy worshiping. Um, you know, in part because of what I saw at the Kennedy Library, a kind of manipulation of history that really disturbed me. The family was known for playing favorites with historians they thought would be sympathetic to President Kennedy, and that really turned me off. So I moved rightward. Um, and then in the last few years, I've sort of, as I've gotten older, um, reassessed my views again and wanted to go back and look at this president who was so influential at least in the early stages of my life. So that's kind of a long-winded answer, Tim, mm-hmm. about why I undertook this project. Yeah, you kind of, well, I'm a tad bit younger than you, but uh, you kind of come from the same, or we sort of come from the same, well, not exactly the same place, but um, all four of my grandparents were Republicans who voted for John F. Kennedy. And, uh, you know, all Catholic, uh, Irish. Mm. So, I mean, but they, I mean, they basically, I mean, the, the distinctions between <laughs> Kennedy and Nixon were not, you know, that, uh, uh, stark really uh, on policy That's and that true. sort of thing back then. So it wasn't that big of a deal to switch parties in that time for that sort of stuff. But, yep. uh, but they voted for him basically because, you know, he was Catholic. <laughs> I wanted the, right. a Catholic president. Right. And then my grandparents say, you know, it was the worst vote uh, we ever made because then we got, you know, LBJ and the Great Society and uh, you yeah. know, all that. Yeah. So, so yeah. they're good. Right. But, um, right. but, uh, but I grew up in the North. I, I grew up in New Jersey and, um, you know, basically surrounded by Catholic, you know, Irish Catholics, Italian Catholics, Polish Catholics. And, uh, but um, but I know very much what you're talking about the Kennedy uh, sort of idolatry. I mean, I'm familiar with all those houses that had you know pictures of the Pope and John F. Kennedy right next to each other. You know right. what I mean? Um, right. Right. And Kennedy, my, I mean, when I was in grade school, I remember uh, I can, what year was it? 1994, I believe, when Jackie Kennedy passed away um and then her at my at my catholic grade school they actually wheeled in a tv to listen to her funeral service at saint patrick's Mm. um which their tvs weren't allowed in but they had audio so um i mean so it's still that kind of you know it was that big of a deal to my school to the leaders of my school that jackie kennedy died and that sort of thing so um so Kennedy's always had a uh, mystique about him, and I guess he does for a lot of other people too. And uh, there's something about the Kennedys themselves that were like, I don't want to like them, 
but like I still like can't not like them. You know what I mean? Just because they're just there's just yeah. something about yeah. them. Uh, you know the sure. the charm sure. and the the grace and all that stuff. Yep. Um. So yeah, I'm I'm not a Kennedy, or, or at least with I'm not a big fan of Robert or or Teddy. Um. But uh, so I'm not a big Kennedy fan. But I there's something about Jack specifically. I don't know that there's it's hard to pinpoint why that is that there's an appeal for me to him despite all of his yeah. uh, the negative qualities that have come to light in the last you know 60 years. But um, right. yeah, so I'm sort oh. of with you there uh, in a way in just. <clears throat> something that draws us to to Jack Kennedy for some reason. I, I agree entirely. And I make this point in my book. Um, one of the people I worked for at the Kennedy Library was Dave Powers, who was probably, arguably, Kennedy's closest. Uh, uh, he wasn't an advisor. He was more of an uh, in-house buddy uh, who sort of took care of the president's basic needs. But uh, Dave Powers used to say to me that he thought that none of the other Kennedys were up to Jack's level. Um, and he he saw a person, and he knew them all quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he saw in JFK qualities that he didn't see in the other brothers and certainly in the various nieces and nephews who have attempted to enter the political arena. Mm-hmm. And I really do think, you know, you're on to something in that Jack Kennedy... And I, I'm the first one to, to say, and I say it explicitly in my book, I mean, the guy's personal life, his marriage was a shambles. Um, he was a serial adulterer. And it was cruel. No it was, I mean, he was a cruel husband in that be. way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in well, that specific yeah, way. No, that's right. In that specific yeah, way. I mean, right. it's, it's a cruel thing to repeatedly do to no, I agree. your wife and the mother of your children, you know. No, no question. And so putting that out front, and I totally understand you and any of your listeners who may, may, you know, completely dismiss JFK. The only thing I would add, and it goes back to your point you were making earlier, I think this is an incredibly smart president. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think this, and and the White House tapes, that were secret tape recordings that were made, I think sustain that view. Um, and I also think, and I make this point in my book, and this hasn't gone down well with some of my more liberal friends, I actually think John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan have a lot in common with one another in that they both believed in American exceptionalism. And I think Kennedy and Reagan during the Cold War made the strongest case uh, for the United States vis-a-vis the Soviet Union yeah. in that struggle between mm-hmm. the Western world and Soviet totalitarianism. So I really do think as a public figure and as a president, there's a lot to admire in John F. Kennedy, both from a policy standpoint and just from the intellect, I think, that he brought to the job as president. Yeah, and I think you're onto something with the the optimism uh, of, yeah. his, uh, of his presidency uh, or the optimism he led people to feel about uh, their country and their future and their country's place in the world and all that. Um, you listen to John F. Kennedy speak, uh, and you know half of the credit 
probably goes to Ted Sorensen for, you know, writing uh, yeah. the speeches. I mean, they're kind of like, uh, you know, Rogers and Hart or something like that, you know. Uh, you know, uh, Ted, Sorensen, Ted Sorensen provided the, the lyrics and, and Jack provided the music, you know. Um, yeah. But he was just a phenomenal public speaker. Uh, yeah. Maybe probably better than any well, obviously we can't go back and listen to you know people that were president that before sound recordings or anything like that but uh probably unparalleled as a um as a public speaker uh as a president yeah i would i would agree with that assessment and of course he took this new technology of television and you know took it took it to the max in terms mm-hmm. of his effectiveness both in his televised press conferences where you see his you know pretty sharp wit and um a keen intelligence and he loved sort of the banter with the press and i and i do understand the press at that time was far more gentle and probably leaning in the democratic direction i'm not sure i'd even say probably but nonetheless <laughs> this was a smart guy and um his rhetoric, as you're rightly pointing out, I would argue some of those speeches of his, particularly, and I make put quite an emphasis on this in the book, his civil rights address of June 11th, 1963, I think is actually a seminal document in American political history, mm-hmm. where he really puts the weight of the presidency behind uh, trying to put an end to Jim Crow and trying to resolve the leftover issues from the Civil War which had taken place a hundred years earlier. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, again, his foreign policy speech. He, he speeches, his speech at the Berlin Wall in 1963. Again, I see Reagan and Kennedy in the same boat, in a sense, uh, in terms of laying out a very stark difference between the American system and the Soviet system. And I think that counts for a lot. And they both like cutting taxes, too, so... Well, they did. Yeah. They did. yeah. And, and, I sh- and I should add, Tim, you know, you mentioned your parents voting for Kennedy and then kind of regretting it. Grandparents, my grandparents. Uh, excuse me, your yeah. grandparents. Yeah. Um, I don't see, and this is obviously speculation, I don't see Kennedy going down the same path with the great society. He's not an FDR Democrat in a sense. He's, um, he is the son of a wealthy businessman. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and I know for a fact, having worked at the JFK Library, that a number of his economic advisors, I think, would share this opinion. He's not as much of a big government adherent as mm-hmm. Lyndon Johnson was. He's not determined, as Johnson was, to sort of outdo FDR in terms of these incredibly expensive, incredibly complicated domestic initiatives. Again, I realize that speculation. Uh, but yeah. I think it's speculation rooted in in fact. Right. I mean, their their uh, regrets on the vote is not voting John in office, but you know, no one obviously could have foresaw the assassination. And then right. uh, with Johnson, I mean, part of the reason Johnson can get the Great Society through is because of uh, the assassination itself, and uh, you know, presenting yeah. Kennedy as a martyr to these causes uh and then the the republicans nominating barry goldwater uh for whoever for whatever i think about goldwater i like goldwater but he was obviously uh outside of the mainstream of american politics at the time 
And so nominating that person at that time when the, the, the Democrats were already probably going to do well because of the aftermath of the assassination, the, the hangover from that, um, led them to getting those massive majorities that uh, in Congress yeah. that, that LBJ needed to pass all those gay society programs. Absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely true. And by the way, Kennedy was hoping, or I should say, uh, let me put it this way, he was sort of uh, most concerned about running against Nelson Rockefeller mm-hmm. or George Romney, the governor of Michigan, Mitt Romney's father, mm-hmm. in 1964. More moderate Republicans who were somewhat yeah. comfortable with the modern welfare state, he feared them. He did not fear gold. He liked Goldwater, by the way. They actually had a very friendly relationship. Uh, and they even talked about if they were to face each other in 64, they would go around the country debating one another mm-hmm. in a series of televised debates. I don't know if that would have happened or not. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's no question that the sort of overwhelming endorsement of Johnson in 64 and then his desire to outdo FDR is in great measure attributable to the you know, assassination of President Kennedy and Johnson's skillful use of that event for political purposes. Yeah, um, he was actually uh, fairly friendly with Nixon, too, at least before 1960, yeah. because they were in the same uh, uh, congressional class. Uh, yeah. They came into Congress together, and they spent some time together uh, uh, in Congress. And, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there was actually, I was, uh, I had... Uh, Irving Gelman on for his last book about the the 1960 election, and he says uh, there was a yeah. point where uh, Jack stopped by Nixon's office um, and uh, dropped off <laughs> dropped off like an envelope full of cash, and for his reelection campaign, and was just like it's from Dad, but you know keep it on the hush hush sort right. of thing so right. you know right. uh yeah so i mean they, they were invited nixon to his wedding uh, yeah yeah they were uh, he he had a very um what's the right word uh, uh well i guess friendly relationship or a good relationship with um across the aisle um he was uh, he i mean his family was very tight with joe mccarthy uh, yep. you know, that, I mean, all kinds of things. So, um, he would, he, he liked to, um, work in a bipartisan fashion. I think that's absolutely correct. And, um, again, you asked earlier, you know, in a sense, why I wrote this book, why now? I mean, to some extent, it's a look at an era when politics was not a blood sport when you could have those kinds of bipartisan relationships. Look, I'm not saying it was not an idyllic era by any stretch, mm-hmm. but I would say it was far improved, <clears throat> excuse me, over the atmosphere that we see today, mm-hmm. where any movement across the aisle is seen as evidence of Treachery. ideological treason. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Oh, you mentioned earlier at, at the start, um, about uh, you sort of got disillusioned with the Kennedy family when you were working at the library and saw how they um, limited access to uh, materials in the library to sort of court historians and that sort of thing. But one thing I was curious about, how uh, how does the Kennedy family block access to, uh, to his library? Isn't that stuff supposed to be 
um, open to all researchers. How does that work? That they have uh, like sort of veto power on who gets to see uh, certain things. Well, Tim. So keep in mind, I'm talking about events. I was there from 1979 to 1985, mm-hmm. and in the early days of that library. Um, the family presence and through Dave Powers, who was the museum curator, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he was sort of their watchdog. Uh, he would alert them if there was somebody poking around the archives that they thought might be something of a threat. The reason they were able to get away with that, and they could not get away with that now, is because the Presidential Records Act of 1978 changes everything. And Richard Nixon, after Watergate, really becomes the first president subject to that. Mm. Prior to 1978, uh, presidential documents were basically seen, other than the classified material, as sort of the property of the outgoing president. Mm. Uh, So that's how President Kennedy's estate, in a sense, was able to maintain control over who got to see these materials. And, of course, they would give the green light to people like Arthur Schlesinger Jr. or Doris Kearns Goodwin, historians they believe they could trust, end quote. Um, that's why they were able to do that. Today it would be much more difficult okay. and contrary to the Presidential Records Act of 78. Okay, gotcha. And uh, speaking of the Kennedy family, um and these hangers-on or members of, uh, not in the family, but sort of in like the Kennedy circle, how, how has the family and uh, those sort of hangers-on, how have they distorted uh, Jack's legacy for their own ends? Yeah, great question. Well, first of all, they're obviously extremely protective and extremely concerned about the kinds of uh, personal misbehavior that has come out in the uh, you know the decades after President Kennedy's death. They did the best to keep the the lid on that as as best they could. But in some ways, what I find even more disturbing is there's been a there was a kind of concerted effort first with Robert Kennedy, uh, then to some extent with Ted Kennedy, to um, uh, in other words to update. President Kennedy's record so that it fit with what Bobby Kennedy was campaigning for Mm -hmm. or what Ted Kennedy was standing for. So there's been this constant sort of um, refurbishment or renovation of Kennedy's record that was designed to enhance the political prospects of his siblings. And so that's, if that makes sense, that's, that's probably the biggest force behind sort of constantly distorting this record. So, for instance, give you a, to give you a specific sure. example, Robert Kennedy's account of the Cuban Missile Crisis in his book, uh, 13 Days, is pretty much fictional, but it's an account designed to put Robert Kennedy in a great light. Um, not so much, not that it was critical of his brother by no stretch, but um it's, it's not an accurate account. And the reason I can say that with some certainty is because we have tape recordings of almost everything that went on inside the White House during mm-hmm. the 13 days. And Bobby Kennedy's account in his book, 13 Days, is really 
distorted. And again, it was designed to make him look good, to sort of update, to be kind, distort, to be accurate, what really happened for the benefit of Robert Kennedy. Mm. Did was that? Uh, did they use the book for as the basis for the the movie? I know they have the same title, but I wasn't yes. sure because like Kenny O'Donnell yes. sort of like the main character of that. Um, but which is a very good movie, well, but it's just you know uh, not true. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, to some extent, that thirteen. Th- this I've always been interested in historiography and about mm-hmm. how Americans, both the public and scholars. Uh, come to adopt certain narratives. The Kennedy family, the Kennedy presidency, and the Cuban Missile Crisis in particular are a perfect case study of how myths get created. And um, that book, 13 Days, lives on to this day, Mm. with Robert Kennedy being sort of the center of it all, and the one who suggests ignoring the hawkish Khrushchev letters, etc., and it really is fictional. There was one voice throughout the entire missile crisis, for better or for worse, who was saying, we have to make some concessions. That's President Kennedy. Robert Kennedy actually took a very hawkish stand. Uh, but 13 Days, the book, sets the mold, the movie, uh, and working in even more fictional elements, as you mentioned, the role of Kenneth O'Donnell. Um, you know, it just, it's just the classic case study in the distortion of history and how things get added over the decades that are even further removed from the truth. Yeah, I mean, even the, you know, the whole Camelot uh, thing, I mean, that's basically entirely the creation of of Jackie and and Ted White. That's right. And Jack probably didn't even like the Camelot uh soundtrack that much <laughs> he may yeah. not have Jacqueline Kennedy insisted he did but mm. no that's absolutely right she Jackie plants the Camelot uh, idea in Teddy White's mind this is within two weeks of the assassination by the way even she comes to admit later on in life that that was a little bit over the top yeah um, but yeah Mrs. Kennedy I mean God bless her she had gone through an absolutely traumatic event uh, sitting by her husband's side in broad daylight and seeing him murdered. Mm. Um, but, you know, she she is very much responsible, not just for the Camelot coinage, coining that term, but also for the pomp and circumstance surrounding that funeral. She's determined to sort of have a procession that's equal to the one given to Abraham Lincoln almost 100 years earlier. So she is very focused on cementing President Kennedy's legacy, and, you know, for better or for worse, she succeeds at that. Yeah. Oh, uh, also, going back a little bit, because you uh, talked about his mastery of television, but yet he was um, he was very ambivalent and wariness, and he had a, a lot of... Uh, he was wary of that, of that medium. Could you talk a little bit about his uh, sure. relationship with television, what he thought of what television was going to mean for the presidency and, um, you know, what sort of gave him pause about it? I was very concerned that it could be manipulated, uh, that the power of images could be used to, uh, to, in a sense, conceal substance. Uh, and it is, it's another irony of the Kennedy presidency that his mastery of that medium is part of what I think has cemented his place 
in the American mind, but he wrote a piece, uh, well, not particularly scholarly journal called TV Guide, uh, in the late <laughs> 1950s, in which he expressed his concerns about the money that it would cost to get the exposure that a candidate would need on the television airwaves. And again, just the sort of ability of uh, PR folks, marketing folks, uh, in, the, in the electronic media to sort of shape an image that was not connected to reality. Uh, very, very concerned about that. Um, and, you know, again, it's one of the ultimate ironies that he masters this medium, that he expressed these deep reservations about the possibility of that medium distorting American politics. And, you know, i got to say, he was dead on when it came to that. Mm-hmm. You also write... Uh, early on in the book, that uh, Jack's personalizing of the office contributed to its decline by distorting uh, the intentions of the office and the capabilities of the office. So uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, So my previous book, and you mentioned it in your intro, I talked about what I see as a sort of steady decline in a kind of dignity in the presidential office, uh, and both the public and uh, respect for the office in, amongst the public and in political circles. And I think part of that is attributable to a, we're experiencing now almost over a century, beginning with Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, of over-promising on what the presidency can deliver and over-promising on what the federal government writ large Uh, can deliver. And so the kind of expansive rhetoric that you saw from T.R., from Woodrow Wilson, from Franklin Roosevelt, and John F. Kennedy, who talked about the president being as big a man as he wants to be, Mm. and that no problem of human nature was beyond man's reason. You know, we can solve the seemingly unsolvable, he was fond of saying. That kind of overreaching, that kind of inflated expectations, when you know, when the rubber meets the road, the government and the presidency cannot deliver on these extravagant promises. And that undermines the credibility of the federal government, in particular undermines, I think, the credibility and the standing of the American presidency. Okay. Um, I guess let's get to some specific things about, uh, or if you want to set the uh, the record straight or provide your opinion on, on what his legacy stands on these certain things. But let's talk about um, uh, Kennedy and civil rights. What is uh, he's kind of seen as wishy-washy, uh, I mean, from the left, I mean, from uh, members of the more progressive left is a sort of wishy-washy president when it comes to civil rights. Um, you know, did a lot of trimming, didn't do all that he could have done. Uh, to advance civil rights at that time. But what do you say is, is his true legacy on civil rights? I think some of those criticisms you just mentioned, Tim, mostly coming from the left, uh, are accurate. He made some fairly extravagant promises in his 1960 campaign. He talked about banning discrimination in federal housing with the stroke of a pen. And it took him almost two years to actually do that. Uh, and then initially, uh, particularly in 1961, when he was focused on foreign policy matters, 
he seems at times to just hope that the issue would go away. So I understand some of that criticism. Uh, but I would also argue, in terms of the, the legacy question, uh, by 1963, this is a man, this is a president who has put his entire, who's put civil rights at the top of his domestic agenda. And again, in that June 63 speech, he's really one of the first, I used to say the first, somebody said Truman actually used language like this, to talk about the civil rights issue as a moral question. And one that strikes at the heart of both the Western Judeo-Christian tradition and America's founding principles. Are we truly going to be a government, a system of government that recognize all human beings as having these inalienable rights? And Kennedy's June 63 speech, he stakes that out in no uncertain terms. So he may have been late to the battle, in a sense. I know Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders believe that, and I totally understand that. But when he finally engages, he engages with everything he's got. And his top domestic agenda, as I said, is civil rights by 63. And it's important to note, Tim, this is going to hurt him. Mm -hmm. His opinion poll numbers begin to drop, particularly in the South. And if he's going to win re-election in 1964... He still needs some of those so-called solid Democratic Southern states to do that. So he's taking some serious political risks here by stepping out in front, in a sense, of the civil rights movement. And I, you know, I sort of recoil when I hear people say, oh, he was a bystander. He didn't do much of anything. I just don't think that's accurate. Part of the reason he's in Dallas, Texas in November of 63, is he's in trouble in a state like Texas due to his identification, being Mm -hmm. identified with the civil rights movement. Okay. All right. And then I guess the other big uh, question mark or the the big debate about his legacy is uh, obviously uh, Vietnam and Mm -hmm. – you know, what he would or would not have done uh, with with the issue in Indochina um, if he had lived, if he had won a second term, you know, would he have uh, gone sort of full tilt boogie like uh, LBJ and had, you know, half a million ground troops, <laughs> uh, right. you know, taking over the war? Or would he have he pursued a more moderate course or even uh, just pulled out of South Vietnam completely. Um, what do you think he would have done had he lived and had he won a second term with uh, with the Vietnam issue? Yeah, I've done a 180 on this, Tim. I used to be firmly in the camp that Kennedy would have followed the same path that Lyndon Johnson followed. I mean, let's face it, it was Kennedy's team that Johnson kept in place. And many members of those teams, uh, that team, were pushing for escalation. But I've totally abandoned that view. Now, with the disclaimer, of course, that this is all speculation. Mm-hmm. I think the folks who make the argument that Kennedy would have done the same thing, that we would have had 550,000 troops in Vietnam by 1968, um, I, I think they're off the mark. And the reason I make that argument is John F. Kennedy hated war. He had fought in the Second World War. Uh, He could have easily lost his life in that PT-109 incident. Two members of his crew were killed. 
in that event. Uh, a third member was badly wounded, badly burned. Kennedy, I think, saved that man's life. This is, and his letters home at this time are filled with anti-war sentiment. Now, look, he's, he's obviously in favor of defeating the Germans and the Japanese, but he hated war. And I think folks who make the argument that Kennedy would have escalated in Vietnam like Johnson did ignore this fact. And you see this hatred of conflict in some of the policies that he pursues while he's president. I mean, during the Bay of Pigs, which is totally his responsibility, he refuses to escalate it, despite intense pressure to do so. When the Soviets put up the Berlin Wall, he's got people telling him, Mr. President, you need to do something. You need to knock this wall down. He refuses to do it. During the Missile Crisis, he's surrounded by hawkish advisors telling him we need to attack Cuba. He refuses to do it. In Laos, in Southeast Asia, he negotiates a neutrality agreement with Khrushchev. It doesn't really hold, but he's trying not to expand the war into Laos. So there are a number of policy decisions this man makes, well short of escalation, well short of committing the United States to hostilities. I just don't think this is a president who would have sat by in a second term as body bags are returning by the hundreds, uh, in some cases, in some months, I think closing in on a thousand. Uh, he's not going to tolerate that type of situation. I think, again, the folks who make that argument don't understand the extent to which this was an anti-war president. Mm-hmm. You don't think, uh, just to play devil's advocate, you don't think that sure, that, sure. Viet- that Vietnam, that the whole situation had some sort of inevitability to it, or that uh, there would have been, uh, again, maybe not saying we're, we're going to have half a million troops there uh, by you know 1968, but um, that with the deteriorating situation there that there would have been a fear of uh, looking weak uh, to the Soviets or, um, or looking weak uh, to the American public and giving Republicans um, the, uh, you know, the opportunity to go out there and say, you know, look, Kennedy lost, lost this Vietnam. The Democrats lost this China uh, almost lost his Korea. Now they've lost his Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You don't think domestic considerations or, um, again, uh, or our appearance uh, as a power uh, to the Soviets, what the Soviets would have thought of us just sort of uh, cutting our losses and, and heading home in 1964 or 1965. You don't think that would have... Uh, sort of forced his hand, even if he was reflexively anti-war, that it would have forced his hand to do something maybe less than what LBJ would have done, but more than what was being done in, uh, you know, by the time he's assassinated in November of 1963. He certainly was fearful of being accused of losing Vietnam in 1964 when he was up for re-election. So what he is doing throughout the two years, 10 months and two days that he's president, is delaying that major decision about using American combat troops, which people like Maxwell Taylor and others had already been advocating. 
Um, so yes, sure. He's this is a smart political figure. He's well aware that he's going to get slammed on this issue. Or if if he were to indicate prior to '64 that we were going to try to negotiate our way out of that mess. Mm. Uh, but again, Tim, I'm firmly convinced that in a second term, and I again, this is speculation. Sure. But I think in a second term, he would not. He would have somehow tried to pull what he did in Laos, which was this a neutrality agreement. Now, would it have held? Absolutely not. It would not have held. And the Democratic Party might have still paid a price in 1968, whoever their nominee might have been, had Kennedy lived. Um, but look, let me, let me add to this. Kennedy sure, spent ahead. a couple of weeks in South Vietnam well, at the time, French Indochina, in the early 50s. He was very interested in this issue. And during that time in Vietnam, he's not just hobnobbing with the American ambassador, with American military advisors. He's speaking to all sorts of people, both American and Vietnamese, at various levels. And he's hearing over and over and over again, do not make the mistake that the French are making. Do not try to step in and fill the void that is going to be left by France. Kennedy had, amongst his Cold War cohorts, a real sympathetic view towards nationalist movements. Not Marxist movements, but nationalist movements. And again, I think he understood the complexity of Vietnam far better than Lyndon Johnson did, whose real love was domestic policy. Mm -hmm. Kennedy's real love was foreign policy. And I think he had a particularly acute view of the issues confronting the so-called third world. And again, I see this factoring into a more nuanced approach to Vietnam that just you're just not going to see at all from Lyndon Johnson, who felt completely in over his head when it came to foreign policy. Kennedy did not feel that way. I think he would have driven the policy in some direction of getting this country out of that entanglement and running the risk that it could pay, you know, could could hurt the Democratic Party in 1968. But again, I just can't see him going down that same route that Johnson did. Mm. Yeah, I tend to think, I don't know, maybe this is just my own personal bias, or but I tend to think presidents that are uh, that are more into foreign policy than domestic policy tend to be better presidents <laughs> or, or uh let's yeah. I, I don't know uh, maybe that i mean because you could argue fdr is a you know really focused on domestic issues or something like that but but it seems to be um that uh the country is better off when we have presidents that sort of say like all right my priority is going to be international affairs and foreign policy rather than um yeah. domestic uh i don't want to use the word meddling or or, or uh, more uh, domestic priority i don't know that could be falsified i mean no, I, I mean someone I, could I, you know probably poke holes in that pretty easily but then it just seems to me that that <laughs> that that's the correct that like what you want in a president is one that focuses on that well it's interesting you should say that tim because john f kennedy agreed in, agreed entirely with that assessment, he actually, in a conversation with Richard Nixon, a private conversation, and I'll, I'll clean this up for your listeners, uh, he says to Nixon, <laughs> nobody, nobody gives a hoot 
about the minimum wage. I'm not sure that's entirely true. But people do care about foreign policy and about matters of war and peace. And um, that's, that was priority one for him. In a way, domestic policy was a chore for Kennedy, not, mm-hmm. not civil rights. Uh, but um, foreign policy, he, he loved the sort of uh, uh, the, the intellectual, international chessboard context yeah. of that part of the president's job. And he found a lot of the domestic stuff, to be perfectly blunt, boring. Yeah, maybe it's just because the foreign policy stuff just seems more or, or it gets more romanticized. But I just tend to think I would rather have a president like I feel like having a president that is incompetent on foreign policy and great on domestic policy. Um, that's not good. Yeah. I'd, rather, I'd rather have a guy who's good on the, the, the foreign policy stuff and, you know, fair to Midland I agree. on the other stuff. I agree. Just, I mean, the country can kind of like run itself without the president. Right. But, you know, uh, on those sort of exactly. issues, but like on the, on the other stuff, that's when, you know, the, uh, the poop can hit the fan sort of thing. So uh, uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. And if I could add to that, Tim, you know, Kennedy was also obsessed with the, the well, obsessed maybe a little too strong, but very concerned about nuclear weapons and about mm-hmm. the whole doctrine of mutual assured destruction. Spends the last few months of his life pushing the nuclear limited nuclear test ban treaty, works vigorously for it, um, and expresses at times to various advisors in private. Again, at the height of the Cold War, you don't want to say these things publicly because you'll be accused of being soft. But he expressed his concern about the, um, you know, the possibility of millions of people losing their lives. And he even mentions at one point young children, including his own, who, who could be uh, lost in, this, in a nuclear holocaust. So th- this, this is a president who is determined to find his way out of the doctrine of mutual assured destruction, which, by the way, is a view Reagan. he shares with yeah. Ronald Reagan. Sure. Yeah, I mean that's exactly. all Star Wars SDI was about was you know exactly, um, exactly. but they shared that same uh, they had a mutual moral uh, repugnance yeah moral uh, mutual abhorrence of nuclear yeah. weapons yeah yeah no question no yeah. question all right um, getting close to the end here so let me see one thing well I'm I'm going to assume just because so many people believe in it. Uh, that there is probably a not insignificant number of listeners to this podcast who think <laughs> there was a conspiracy uh, to kill, uh, to assassinate John F. Kennedy in Dallas, in Dealey Plaza in November yeah. 1963. Um, can you do me the personal favor of sort of uh, pooping on these people uh, for a bit? You know, <laughs> Uh, you know what? You know what really happened in Dealey Plaza, November 26, 1963. Well, I won't poop on the people, but I'll certainly poop on the conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's basically. And, and, what I mean. and by the way, I do understand why a majority of Americans at this point believe there was a fairly vast conspiracy involved. Um, part of the reason was the Warren Commission that looked into President Kennedy's death did conceal some things, and one of the biggest things they concealed was the American campaign, which had begun under Eisenhower and continued under Kennedy, to assassinate Fidel Castro. And because that was so highly classified, that was just off-limits. Operation Mongoose. Members, right. 
Operation Mongoose. Yeah. The members of the Warren Commission would have known about it, but they don't deal with it at all in their final report. So that is a gaping hole in the account of what happened. And when that's revealed 15 or 20 years later, people say, aha, uh-huh. you know, there you go. There's a smoking gun. There's something far more at work here. Look, the fact is that the evidence against Lee Harvey Oswald is overwhelming. Mm. There were three people on the floor right below Oswald who heard the shell casings fall on the, on the ceiling of the fifth floor of the depository, Oswald's on the sixth, who had plaster falling on their heads from the reverberations from the gunshot. The rifle that's found on the sixth floor is the one that Oswald had ordered. His palm print is found on the rifle. Um, uh, he shows up at work that morning with this long uh, wrapped up item, and somebody says, what's that? And he says, curtain rod. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I go to work, I don't bring curtain rods with me. <laughs> um, and, and we know for a fact that he killed Officer J.D. Tippett within an hour and 20 or so minutes after the assassination. Multiple eyewitnesses for that. Multiple yeah. witnesses, yeah. yes, yes. So the evidence against Oswald is overwhelming. Now, the fact that he's silenced 48 hours later by Jack Ruby also, of course, plays into the conspiracy um, uh, industrial complex, I like to call it. Uh, But Ruby, you know, it was in a way a, a fluke. Had they moved Oswald at the scheduled time, Ruby wasn't even in the garage when that would have happened. So if Ruby was part of a conspiracy to take this guy out, He'd have been there on time. Mm-hmm. That's just one of it, one element of all this. But I do think what's underlying all this, Tim, is a desire to infuse the death of President Kennedy with more meaning, yeah, with balance some the scales, rationale. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Even Jackie Kennedy said something to the effect of, "I can't believe my husband was killed by a silly little communist." She wanted him to be, if he was going to die, a martyr for civil rights or some larger issue. And I think we all sort of want that as human beings. And we recoil at the idea that one misguided, um, narcissistic individual who had dreams of being an historic figure, by the way, succeeded at that, uh, could change the course of history. But I'm sorry to say, at this point, 60 years out, the evidence against Oswald is overwhelming. And, um, you know... But having said that, I don't expect this to ever be resolved. In other words, in the mind Mm. of most citizens, as long as there's a United States, this conspiracy industrial complex is going to continue to flourish. Yeah. How much of an effect do you think the the Oliver Stone film had? (laughs) Yeah, that's, you know. Which is, which, I mean, I recently just watched it, the director's cut, for like the first time in like 20 years, you know, um, and it's a. It's an, a fantastic piece of filmmaking. I mean, it's um, as I mean for like the craft of film uh, of making a movie. It's it might be one of the best movies ever made, but it's such a malicious, um, yeah. just uh, a di- uh, just a malicious a historical document. Um, yeah. You know, and it's and it's also. Uh, you know things I didn't pick up on 20 years ago, but it's an incredibly homophobic film. Um, yeah. Uh, but how much of that of that film do you think uh, some sort of cemented that um, conspiracy 
uh, Jamie, do you think it would have still been? Uh, do you think as many people today would still believe the conspiracy stuff if it were not for uh, Stone's film? I mean, I think it's a factor, uh, but I would say that probably still be a majority of Americans who would believe in a vast conspiracy without the Stone film. I mean, the Stone film. One reviewer said you come out of that movie wondering if you were part of the conspiracy. And that the only person in Dealey Plaza that day who wasn't trying to kill Kennedy was Jacqueline Kennedy. I mean, it reeks of paranoia. It reeks of what we've come to call some of, not not me, uh, but many Americans have come to call the deep state. Mm -hmm. This used to be the province of the American left. It's now gospel amongst the Trumpist movement on the right that somehow there is this deep state composed of FBI, CIA, and Pentagon elements who really run things. It's total fiction, but again, it offers a kind of uh, uh, comprehensive account to explain these events that all of us find shocking and disturbing. Yeah, when I was a kid, I got to I got to take some classes at uh, Montclair State uh, University of New Jersey, and uh, mm-hmm. one of the classes I took, and this must have been a probably like a year or two after the stone film came out was this class on uh, conspiracies uh, or conspiracy theories. And the professor did all kinds of these different conspiracy theories over time, including like the, you know, the Paul McCartney actually died in a car accident in 1967 and was replaced by a lookalike. But he did uh, the main part of the course was on the Kennedy assassination. And it was basically him just refuting every single like point of like the stone film because you know it just came out like a couple years before i mean to the point where yeah. like he actually brought like a man like carcano like the same rifle oswald huh. used into the class and like had like people in the class like you know fire three sh- not, i mean not actual live rounds or not nothing was right. in, was right. in the rifle but like you know we were all kids and he was like all right you know uh get off three shots in 11 seconds and like every kid could do it and all this sort of thing, yeah. and just showing where uh, all the different the thing about the magic bullet being nonsense, and you know they didn't have like the the height of Kennedy and and Connolly correct in the car, you know, and that sort of thing, and all this other stuff. So yeah. um, that was helpful to me as a little kid when <laughs> maneuvering all this sure. all this sure. Kennedy uh, uh, conspiracy nonsense. Yeah, I, like you said, the, the the only really cover the only only real cover up in the whole situation in uh, the the aftermath of the conspiracy or I mean, aftermath of the assassination is the Kennedy brothers' role in Operation Mongoose. No, that's that's, that's absolutely correct, Tim. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, look, I mean, I would urge your listeners if they really are interested in that topic. Uh, there's there's a writer and historian by the name of Max Holland mm. who has done just terrific work on the Kennedy assassination and taking the conspiracy arguments seriously and respectfully, but I think dismantling them one by one, uh, your reader, your, excuse me, your listeners may want to take a look at Max Holland's work. Yeah. And, you know, he makes the case. He's not a conspiracy theorist at all. Uh, and he, he, but he understands why these, uh, why these myths continue to proliferate again, partly due to the concealing of operation Mongo. But also due to the fact that, as Holland puts it, Lee Harvey Oswald was the only Marxist within a hundred hundred mile radius of Dealey <laughs> Plaza. I mean, Dallas was a city of right wing John Birch Klan activity, 
And the immediate assumption was that that's where the bullet must have come from, from these reactionary forces in Dallas. And, you know, then it turns out you've got this guy who lived in the Soviet Union for a couple of years who professes to be a Marxist being the the suspect. And that's where the initial doubts begin to set in. And by the way, I'm glad you mentioned 11 seconds. There's a famous book called Six Seconds in Dallas. It wasn't six seconds. Mm -hmm. It was 11 seconds. And this was a Marine marksman firing at an open limousine literally right below his window. I mean, you know, in a way, Kennedy was, pardon the expression, a sitting duck. And it's not, you know, it doesn't take a particularly talented marksman to hit that target so exposed in broad daylight on the Dallas side street in a car moving at 11 miles an hour. Yeah, have you actually been to Dealey Plaza? Have you been in the um, in the book depository building? And like, yeah, so in I'm the window? to say I have not, no. but believe it or not, just within the last few weeks, I received an invitation oh, okay, to... Great. Uh, Attend a symposium there. Yeah, if you if you go and you look out like the window and and they have the spot marked where, yeah, I guess like the kill shot happened. I mean, you you can just see you can just look at it and just be like, all right, yeah, this is definitely a hundred percent doable for someone who's trained, (laughs) who's basically a a I mean, who's a professionally trained uh, marksman, you know. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Who, by the way, six months earlier had taken a shot right, yeah. at a retired general, Edwin Walker, uh, who was kind of, you know, a leader of right wing elements in Dallas. Uh, Oswald missed that shot. Walker was standing, I think, in his kitchen. But again, it's that same rifle that's going to show up six months later uh, on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Mm-hmm. So, again, I think, I mean, it's not 100% solid, but. The evidence is overwhelming, in my view, that it was Lee Harvey Oswald who had dreams. I mean, he kept a diary that he called, excuse me, his historic diary. And again, this is a guy who had dreams of becoming a historical figure. Here he is stuck working in a book warehouse, and he's going to make a name for himself, and he succeeded. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I've kept you... Already a little longer than I told you I was going to keep you, so my apologies. But I'll, just a couple more questions, I guess, before we go. Um, but just sort of wrapping up, um, why don't you tell us, uh, what do conservatives get right about Kennedy, and you know what do they get wrong? And the same thing with liberals. What do the, what do the liberals get right sure. about Kennedy? What do they get wrong? And, and specifically, where do you think... Uh, John F. Kennedy ranks as a president because he's always very, very high uh, on polls of uh, not academics, but like the general public. Kennedy usually ranks yes. very, very high, uh, usually in the top five. Uh, so where do you think he ranks as a president? I would rank him uh, a near great president if we're going to use the categories that those scholarly polls tend to use. I mean, look, two years, 10 months, and two days, it's hard to put him in the great category. Uh, Although I would say we owe him a masterful handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm here today, in a sense, because of the way he handled that, as are your listeners as well. Um, As far as what conservatives get right, uh, I would argue that some of them were correct in detecting, as I mentioned earlier, 
earlier, a kind of, this is a little too strong, but pacifist streak in this president. Uh, he was anxious to avoid World War III. He was anxious to avoid a nuclear holocaust. He bent over backwards to try to put himself in Khrushchev's shoes during the missile crisis. So in that sense, I think conservatives were on to something, uh, that he's not Curtis LeMay, uh, <laughs> that he's not somebody itching for a, uh, a showdown with the Soviet Union. What conservatives get wrong, both then and, and now, is this belief that he was just good looks, great hair, which is somebody who's follically challenged. I'm always challenged <laughs> of as well. Um, you know, great teeth, uh, uh, good, looked good on television, Vigor. all those superficial qualities. Yeah, which, of course, is a complete myth. He was quite sickly. Um, But that's wrong. I mean, this is a man of substance. You alluded to this earlier. He had a kind of romantic view of history. He loved to read biographies. Um, He was very interested in the lives of people like Winston Churchill and others. Mm. Um, And so, you know, he's not a superficial character. He's not just good luck. Um, I would argue, and I argued earlier in our interview, your interview, uh, that he's one of the smartest presidents we've ever had. He had this incredible capacity to put himself, <clears throat> excuse me, in the shoes of his adversaries, uh, both domestic political adversaries and foreign leaders. I would, you know, if somebody doesn't believe what I'm saying, spend a few hours listening to these White House tape recordings of Kennedy. This was a man of substance. Uh, liberals. Um, again, I think they are har- uh, far too critical, many of them, on Kennedy and civil rights. They refuse to acknowledge the fact that he barely won the presidency in 1960. He just got in. Uh, he had a narrow majority uh, in, con- well, somewhat narrow majority in Congress that was dominated by Southern anti-civil rights Democrats. Any good politician is going to factor that in to his calculations as to which policy he's going to pursue and how vigorously he's going to pursue them. And so, but, and then I think liberals also ignore the fact that by 1963, summer of 63, he goes all in on civil rights at some political risk. And his poll numbers drop, and they're hearing from members of Congress from the South who are saying, don't push this agenda. Um, so what liberals get right about Kennedy, um, well, I would say, and this is something that I admire too, and you and I touched on it earlier, I, I think Kennedy appealed to a sense of public spiritedness in the American public, uh, the idea of giving back to your country, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. At least liberals in the early 60s used to rally to that kind of a cry. And yeah, now to make them vomit. So today. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, and I get that. I get that. Uh, but I certainly admire that that Kennedy, the one who tried to call Americans to service beyond self. Right. Yeah, we didn't even get a chance to talk about space either. And uh, that's probably my favorite yeah. thing about him. Um, but you said you, you rank him as a near great president. So what does that mean, like? Uh, like top 10 or like I'd the- put him well so in the most re- I, I'm part of these you know C-SPAN every four years does mm-hmm. a pretty exhaustive survey Siena College does the same I participate in both those I've usually got him hovering around you know the 10th 
mm-hmm. boss. Uh, some of my colleagues put him higher, usually seventh or eighth or ninth or somewhere in there. Um, I just, you know, I don't think I can go much beyond that again because of, <clears throat> I'm sorry, oh, no the brevity of his presidency. Mm-hmm. And uh, while I think it was a significant presidency, both in terms of policy and in sort of, uh, and this isn't necessarily a positive thing, the continued expansion of the powers of the presidency and the perception that this is a nation dominated by the presidency. I don't find that healthy, but he contributes to that. So he's a significant figure, but again, due to the brevity of his presidency, I just can't put him up with an FDR or a Lincoln or a Washington, who, by the way, I greatly Mm -hmm. admire, and I always put in that number one slot because none of this happens without George Washington. Yeah. So you put Washington ahead of Lincoln? I do. Ooh. I do, and I'm usually in the minority on that. Yeah. I think it's... There's no there's no union to save without... Right, right, Washington. yeah, exactly. I think it's closer... I think Lincoln probably... If you, if you put, like, a gun to my head and made me choose, I think I'd probably go Lincoln, but I think it's closer than uh, yeah. people say. But just like you said, I mean, the guy basically invented the office. Like, <laughs> there's no... He I mean, yeah, he so, I mean... Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I... I uh, that's interesting. I mean, I can, I don't know. Uh, I would probably reflexively put Lincoln one, but I, I, I understand the arguments for Washington number one, and I don't necessarily disagree with any of those arguments. You know, <laughs> so sure, uh, sure. Anyway, so what do you, uh, just, uh, just out of curiosity, where do you, where do you uh, put Reagan? I usually put Reagan quite high, um, and I think the last time around, I had him kind of in the middle of that top. Well, I probably had him somewhere around seventh or eighth or ninth, somewhere in there, mm. uh, primarily for his foreign policy accomplishments, for his, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of these people who gives Reagan a lot of credit for the end of the Cold War, for the collapse of the Soviet Union. He pursued policies that a lot of his advisors and certainly his critics in the Democratic Party and the media thought would never succeed. This is a man who believed that the West could win the Cold War. And to me, that is an historic accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Where I'm critical of Reagan, and even more so in recent years, is I do think he had an opportunity to advance the cause of civil rights, but also to enhance the possibility that the Republican Party might actually be able to siphon off some African-American support from the Democratic Party. I don't see him doing that. I think it was a missed opportunity. And again, on a policy level in particular, I think some of Reagan's policies regarding civil rights were, were counterproductive. Gotcha. Oh, um, and sorry to keep keeping it, but I, since I have you here um, and we're talking sure. about ranking presidents, uh, so your book, uh, Rush to Judgment, the one on George Bush that came out, Yeah. Um, I think it was right after the end of his presidency, maybe. Um, it came out 10 years ago. It was already 10 years ago? My God. Uh, yeah, 2012. Yeah. Uh, 2012, yeah. So I read that uh, back then, and huh. um, I found it extremely helpful in uh, discussions with my more uh, uh, liberal friends who were, yeah. you know, I mean, it was, uh, you know, everyone talks about Trump derangement syndrome, but uh, uh, a lot of people aren't, younger people aren't old enough to remember how sort of unhinged the the, the Bush stuff was yeah. at the time, yeah. 
and just uh, I, I mean not even among just like political commentators and everything, but from uh, presidents and then I mean not president but presidential historians and uh, other historians and yes. then and then subsequently when Obama took office, you know. Um, I think was it like Michael Beschloss who said something that like Obama's the smartest person ever to be president and or something like that and it was like wait a minute like the guy can't doesn't even like know a foreign language like John Adams could read and speak Hebrew and Greek and Latin right. you know what I mean like right. like let's let's pump yeah. the brakes a little bit um uh, but um so now here we are um Bush left office in 2009, so we're getting close to 15 years uh, out of the presidency. Yeah. Where do you think George W. Bush, um, what his presidency, where his presidency stands, with a little bit of of yeah. uh, of time removed from the the uh, the fevered spirits of 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 his uh, of his time in office. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, the last time around in that C-SPAN poll, I had Bush somewhere a smack in the middle, maybe slightly below the actual midpoint. You can't have a failed war in Iraq and a pretty significant economic collapse on your watch. Mm-hmm. Whether he bears responsibility or not, <clears throat> you just can't have that happen, I think, and expect to be ranked that high. But I wrote that book. Uh, you know, look, as I hope people have learned, you know, if they've tuned in today, um, I, I try to approach whether it's John F. Kennedy or George W. Bush with as much objectivity as I can muster. And I'm probably one of the only people on the planet <laughs> who's actually written a book defending some of George W. Bush's actions and also having some positive things to say about John F. Kennedy. Mm. I wish we could all get beyond these ideological igloos that we live in, these cocoons that we live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess I'm straying from your actual question. No, that's fine. I, I think George, George W. Bush was faced with one of the most significant attacks on the United States. I mean, the casualties on 9-11, I think you have to go back to the Battle of Antietam. Uh, I'm not talking man-made. I'm not talking natural disasters here. I'm talking man-made. In terms of casualties, in terms of the shock to the American psyche, you know, Bush was told within weeks of 9-11 that al-Qaeda had snuck some type of dirty bomb into the United States. That's going to focus your attention, whether you're yeah. George Bush or, or Al Gore. And I think he's confronted with a serious threat now because that threat has subsided. People are looking back and sort of dismissing Bush for blowing things out of proportion. But, you know, hindsight is always twenty. Sure, yeah. When you're sitting in the middle of a crisis like that. I completely understand some of the actions that he took, and I think that sort of Monday morning quarterbacking, particularly when it's done for partisan purposes by scholars, is especially offensive. Yeah, I more offensive to me is the sort of the conservative, uh, sort of the entertainment wing of mm-hmm. that uh, of the. Um, conservative movement who i remember you know (laughs) at the time uh all being cheerleaders for bush and his policies Mm -hmm. and now uh retroactively uh you know they 
He's a know, warmonger. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. And like, yeah. and and you know, everyone, pretty much everyone on the Republican side of the of the of the issue. I mean, on that side of the spectrum politically, was for the most part all in on Iraq. And yeah. you know, a lot of people forget the context of the whole thing. And uh, you know, it wasn't that long after 9/11. They were still pulling bodies out of uh, the ground yep. at, at Ground Zero. Um, you know, there was, I mean, it wasn't just, I know they said, you know, Bush lied and about the intelligence and all this, but this was intelligence that basically everyone had, I mean, the British had, uh, the French had, uh, the Israelis had, and everybody thought that Saddam was, um, pursuing this weapons of mass destruction program because he wanted people to believe it because it propped him up. And thought it made him more powerful. So Tim, his own yeah. Saddam's own generals believe. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so when I hear this stuff from, I don't mind it from the Democrats or you know, the, or the liberals because it, uh, uh, you know, because that's what they're supposed to do. Um, but when I these people like like Mark Levin or Tucker Carlson or something, you know, go back and paint that um, yep. paint him that way, sort of really irks me. And, um, I mean, granted, obviously in hindsight, never should have gone into Iraq. Um, but at the time it wasn't as clear cut. And like I said, we just had 2,500 people, uh, murdered essentially on 9-11. It wasn't that long before that. And regime change in Iraq was, uh, something that was U.S. policy even before Bush took office. That was something, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, correct. put forward. So I, in hindsight, obviously we never should have done it. And they obviously erred in how they thought the occupation was going to go. Um, but I get it. I mean, it was the wrong decision to go in, but I understand why they went in, uh, at the time it was yep. just, but it wasn't a, uh, you know, this whole, Bush lied, uh, neocons, you know, Halliburton, Halliburton, you know, yeah, Halliburton Dick Cheney, yeah, 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 yeah. So a war for oil, right? You know, seventy-two percent. One opinion poll in the spring of two thousand three showed that seventy-two percent of the American public favored the invasion of Iraq. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, the American people who are now critical of Bush, uh, they too supported the war mm-hmm. at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, being president is a difficult job. And, you know, if I bring a bias to whether I'm writing about Bush or Kennedy, it's that I under, I think I understand just how difficult that job is and how most I, I could make the case. I think for almost every American president, they do not take this decision to go to war, to use force lightly. They do not approach it cavalierly. And I think their motives, their motives are mixed, but much in the mix in the mix there is a sort of principled belief in America's role in the world. These are not people who are doing it to line the pockets of Wall Street yeah. or of Halliburton. Yeah, I mean, it was basically, look, this happened on our watch. We cannot let this happen again. And we're basically well, exactly. going to do whatever we think uh, we can do to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Um, That's correct. Yeah, so yeah. anyway... I mean, yeah. we can relitigate all that for, you know, <laughs> yeah, sure. all day. But, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so like I said, I kept you a little long. Sorry about that. But one, it's just one last question. It's a question I ask uh, everybody that uh, comes on the podcast, basically. And that's, uh, you know, what would you like the audience uh, 
to get out of this book or or you know what's the one thing you'd want a reader to uh who having read it, what, what would you want them to take away from it having read it i think the most important thing i would hope the reader would take away from my book is that it's important for all of us to somewhat continually revisit our political beliefs our political principles not i'm not advocating that people you know stick their finger in the wind and change <laughs> with every you know sen- uh, mm-hmm. sentiment expressed in a public opinion poll not in the least but try to move beyond your own ideological echo chambers you know do the hard work that's required of being a good citizen which means you know reading and paying attention to civic affairs not just you know picking something up off the internet and running with it um in a way, this is the most personal book I've ever written. It's a book about my own transitioning political views, which, again, I believe is a healthy thing in a republic. Uh, I believe that we're living in somewhat dire times where we view our fellow citizens as enemies if they don't agree with us. Mm-hmm. That is remarkably unhealthy. John F. Kennedy didn't do that. George W. Bush didn't do that. And so, again, it's a pitch in a way to look at your own views, to, to, to use the power of your reason, and to avoid being stuck in a kind of ideological position where you're unwilling to listen to opposing arguments. All right. Very well said. All right. Again, the book is uh, Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy. Uh, highly, highly recommend uh, this book. It was a... Uh, for those of you interested in Kennedy or just uh, uh, mid-20th century history or anything like that, it's a uh, thought-provoking look at the man and what his legacy uh, is for you know how the Kennedy presidency affects us today and how it's likely to continue to do so in the future and you know what certain developments might mean for Kennedy's reputation in the future. I'm talking about Me Too and all that stuff, so... Um, yeah, so it's a great little book. Highly, highly recommend to everybody. Make sure you go pick it up. Um, again, the book is Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy, uh, the author, Dr. Stephen F. Knott. And, uh, Dr. Knott, uh, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast and, uh, and discussing the book with me. And thank you for writing the book, too. So, uh, you know, it's not an easy thing, so I appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today. Great, thanks. Oh, uh, one more thing before we go. Anything else you you want to plug? Uh, any social media or anything appearances? Anything coming up or anything you're working on? Anything like that you want people uh, to know about? Well, um, I'd love folks to follow me on Twitter. Uh, here, I just sort of criticized people who get <laughs> their news off the internet, but uh, <laughs> I am on Twitter at Publius57. Publius being the pen name of the authors of the Federalist Papers. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure what my next book is going to be. I've got a few ideas in mind. Uh, I'm actually retiring from my full-time professorship. Hey, congratulations. War College in two weeks. Thank you, Tim. Uh, so, But I'm not going to disappear. So uh, I appreciate you and your listeners All right. uh, for, for tuning in today. All right. Well, yeah, again, thank you very, very much for, uh, for everything. And... Uh, for those of you out there, if you like this podcast, you know, please make sure, again, like I said earlier at the beginning, uh, please make sure you leave us a five-star review and share uh, share with your friends. 
And then if there's uh, if you have any questions or comments or if uh, you have a book you'd like us to cover on the podcast or discuss in this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, speaking of Twitter, we do have our um, our Twitter account for the uh, the podcast that you can reach out to us there too, uh, with any questions or comments. You know, uh, you know, give us a follow, send us a DM, all that kind of stuff. Our Twitter handle is at illbooks at yeah at illbooks at i l l books. So make sure you check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye. Each evening from December to December, before you drift to sleep upon your cot, Think back on all the tales that you remember of Camelot. Ask every person if he's heard the story and tell it strong and clear if he has not that once there was a fleeting wisp of glory called Camelot. It never rained till after sundown. By 8 a.m. the morning fog had flown. Don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment.